Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. And this one is dedicated to the newest and scariest, some might say, horror movie <laughs> on the block, Barbarian Crom. That's right, folks. <laughs> This is a movie that crushes his enemies, sees him driven before them, and hears the lamentations of the women. And join me to discuss it in a basement studio. (laughs) That's right. Don't worry. I think the basement of wherever we are, this only extends this far. Okay? I mean, I don't know, because that panel behind you looks an awful lot like a door. You never know, there could be a secret All right, I'll somewhere. introduce you guys, I'll go and investigate it. If I'm not <laughs> back in five minutes, just run the fuck out of here as fast as you possibly can. Is there a piece of string can. that you can pull somewhere? <laughs> Does anyone have a member of the scores? Is the scores? Oh, I'll get to it. Helen O'Hara's here. Hello. Sophie Butcher's here. Hello. <laughs> Looking for... <laughs> <laughs> Hello. You can't see... You can't... <laughs> Dinky Sophie Butcher at the moment. Uh, you can't see this, but Sophie is sitting on a chair that I think was used by Mr. Bean. Yeah. In... <laughs> no, not Mr. By Bean. My ear. Johnny English. How can I get those two oh, mixed up? No. Oh, my God. Rowan Atkinson's two most iconic characters, of course. Johnny English when he's in the... Is it Johnny English wow, Strikes I'm Again sorry. or Johnny I'm English sorry. Reborn? I'm just really when he's... struggling with that, even as a joke. He's on the chair. <laughs> <laughs> he's on the chair. Oh, you mean the guy from Hot Shots Part 2? Yes, of course. Of course, him. Obviously, yes, he's course the most him. iconic mm-hmm. Rowan Atkinson mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a single one uh, who might be more iconic than, than that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Sophie is sitting on a chair that is far too low, quite frankly. So It's like when you go back to like your primary school as an adult and the chairs all seem so big when you were a <laughs> yeah, kid yeah. and then you sit on one and you're like... Yeah. Stand up for a, for a second, Sophie. I want, I want to conduct an experiment because you're not that small, right? You're like tall. No, what I'm are a tall you? You're person. five. What are you? Five, six? Five, nine? Five. Fuck off. Are you five, nine? Wait a minute. Come around here. Come around. Oh, I'm God. Five, oh, my God. I feel like we're getting a I little off the mic topic, now. But... No, no, no. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm taller than you, Chris. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but you're wearing pumps or something, aren't you? Right. So, anyway, Sophie and I nope. are exactly the same Black height. Trainers. I have not been emasculated in any way, shape, or form. Oh, God. Uh, yes, yeah, Sophie is here, but sitting in a really, really small seat and really sitting at chair. just the right height for his microphone is a mon woman. <laughs> Hello there. How are you doing? <laughs> good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm very intrigued and excited to discuss this film, although I am regretting choosing the seat with my back towards the door. Uh, yeah. I mean, nowhere safe in Barbarian. This is why I've got the small chair. So <laughs> a good vantage point for the door. I mean, you're not safe when from the mother. Only the doors you know about. Yeah. There yes. could be other doors. There are doors and floors. There are How doors and ceilings. How many times do you have to tell us there are more doors? Yeah. And then as is aptly displayed in the movie itself and demonstrated in the movie itself, uh, the mother doesn't need doors. She doesn't care for doors. She can come through a wall if need be. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, anyway. Really so, can. we will talk about this movie uh, in just a few seconds, but first let's hear from the man who wrote it and directed it and from whose deceased mind it stemmed, Zach Kreger, who is, like Jordan Peele before him, a comedian by trade who has had this really creepy horror film in his head. And one night it just kind of went onto the page and there you go. Barbarian. Is that how the writing process works? <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> much for him. Easy. Pretty wow. much for him it was. Uh, this movie, uh, as you will hear, came to him pretty much fully formed. So here we go. Zach Kreger talking about Barbarian with me. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast. Spoiler special for Barbarian by the film's writer-director, Zach Kreger. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Good, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. And thanks for being here. Uh, this film, I don't even know where to start, quite frankly. Um, 
it reinvents itself every 30 minutes, which is which is really interesting for one thing. But I also understand that, that it, this is kind of how the movie came about for you, that you really didn't know where this was going when you sat down to write it for the first time. That's true. I um, I didn't outline this. I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen. I just wanted to sit down and write a scene. You know, I had the idea of of a woman checking into an Airbnb very late at night. And uh, there happens to be a man already double booked there. And I thought that's a good setup for something, you know, I really wasn't thinking a movie. I was just like, let's just write this. You know, I I write in my garage late at night and uh, just kind of for me just to have fun. And so just, I just kind of followed my fingers as it were. And, and, um, and as the more I kind of wrote their evening together, the more I got kind of hooked on it and I was enjoying myself. And then, you know, she, she kind of winds her way down into the tunnels and it got to the point where, you know, um, he he went down deeper than her. And by the time she caught up to him, I was like, OK, something should happen now. I don't know what it is. You know, I, I was basically writing the movie that we were all watching where like he's clearly the bad guy. Right. That was in my head. I was like, right. OK, yeah. whatever he's going to do, he should do it here. And I was, I was I had this realization. There's nothing I could imagine that would be satisfying because the audience has predicted this moment from the, the second he opens the door. So like anything I do is just going to be predictable. Uh, and I was, I was like on the verge of just bailing on the whole thing. I was like 45 pages in, I was like, well, this is a big 45 page waste of my time. And then out of nowhere, I was like a giant naked lady comes out of the darkness and smashes his head to pieces and it's over. And, uh, and I was like, well, now I, now I think it's great. I was like, this is the first time I really loved it. I was like, ah, but it's it's like, where do you go from there? And then I cannot remember if I thought of it quickly or or it took me time. But the idea of going from that image to Malibu and to start with a different actor and a, a different character and a different zone just felt correct to me. I, I really can only go by my my own inner vibe. You know, I just felt like it felt like that was what the story wanted. And so I just kind of followed that instinct. And I. I knew I was going to weave him back into the same sort of crucible. And um, I just let it, I let it go. I I really don't, I, for Barbarian, I did not think two steps ahead ever. I thought one step ahead always. And, um, and I think it's better for it because I'm an audience member as I'm writing, you know? So if I don't know what's happening, the audience has no idea what's happening. You know what I mean? I think the Coen brothers said that. I think they were like, we don't know where our stories will go. And so that's how we know the audience won't know. And I, you know, anything that those guys do, I'm, it's good enough for them. It's good enough for me. Yeah. So I mean, you, you can't, you can't predict the unpredictable. If you don't know what you're exactly. doing, then how can anyone else? But I'm fascinated by that, that moment of creation then. So, so this, this 45 pages, were you in a fugue state or was this written over a, a period of a couple of nights? No, a couple of nights, um, which is fast for 45 pages. A couple oh, yeah. nights is fast. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just, I try to turn my brain off when I'm writing. I, I, I really do, mostly. Now, now I'm writing a movie right now, and if you look down there, I've got like note cards arranged all over the place, and it's a different, it's a different animal altogether, and I'm being very like, I'm outlining it, I'm thinking about it all the time, I'm being very intellectual about it, but like with, with Barbarian, the whole, the whole point of that writing was to just be a conduit. For my own subconscious, and I and I really uh, I, I'm a big kind of worshiper at the altar of David Lynch, and he has this book called Catching the Big Fish mm-hmm. about incorporating transcendental meditation into your writing, and I'm I do that. So a lot of Barbarian is like I, I I go deep, you know, I do TM, and then I and then I write, and a lot of it came out of meditation, and a lot of this movie I'm working on now is the same. But um, so I I think that like 
you know, as much of your thoughts that you can remove um, between the creative, whatever it is, the creative muse and the page, mm-hmm. uh, I try to get out of the way. Now, sometimes when you do that, you 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 go into dead ends and you go off a cliff and you wait, you do waste your time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it when it engages, I think you get something really special. I mean, as as a quick aside with that, the one time I've met David Lynch was he was over here uh, giving a talk essentially about transcendental meditation, and he was accompanied by his friend Donovan. And I wondered oh, if really? I wondered, yeah, no way. yeah, okay. It was one of the most surreal interview experiences of my life, where uh, David Lynch was on a throne in a room, and Donovan was accompanying him on an acoustic guitar throughout the interview. Wow. It felt it felt so Lynchian. It was yep. almost it was almost beyond parody yeah. in a way. It was yep. it was it was beautiful. But Donovan was in it, and obviously Donovan, you use a Donovan track in this in this in this movie. I do, I do. So was that was that intentional, or was that completely no. No. just out there in the ether? I, you know, I I had there was another song I really wanted for that scene, and the uh, the the musician who uh, who you know who wrote that song was was kind of an asshole in our correspondence, and so I was like, all right, I'm moving on. And um, and I'd been listening to that Donovan song. I thought it was so funny. Like that song to me is like hilarious. And um, I just lost I just lost the opportunity to use the song I wanted. And I, and I was walking around, and I heard that, and I was like, this is even better. That cowbell. When that cowbell comes on, I was like, this is so stupid. You know, and I don't think the song is stupid. I just think it's stupid in the context that I use it, you know. Yeah. And the yeah. idea that you would cut from this horrific violence to a cowbell <laughs> and like the goofiest song ever. I was like, I ha- this is it's a gift. You know, a lot of times the things you think are like death shots end up being the biggest blessings, you know, um, if you're receptive. And so uh, there's so many cases in this movie where, where what I thought was a ruiner ended up being an elevator. And for example, you know, I wrote the denouement to take place on a church, uh, the roof of a church, like a big A-frame church. And they were going to run up one side and the mother was going to, you know, he's going to throw her down the other side and then she would slide. And then it was going to be a whole thing. But where our church was supposed to be in Bulgaria, where we built our whole set, there was this giant water tower. And I was like, well, I guess we can like build the church in front of the water tower and like CGI (laughs) out the water tower. Not like we have the money for that. And my DP was like, we could just try and use the water tower. And I was like, oh, my God, that's even better. You know, it's like (laughs) I I just hadn't thought of it that way. So, yeah, it's it's. uh, it's weird how it works. There's a lot of stuff that was just meant to be about this, and uh, I think so. Yeah, I really think so. But I want to I want to circle back to the to that that moment of creation in, in a second. But talking about the Donovan song leads mm, me to yeah, yeah. the how you end the movie because you mm. end the movie, and you know anyone who uses the Renettes "Be My Baby." I mean that that's a song that had that is that is in film lore. So you know to use know, it this fellas, well yeah, yeah. and this distinctively is is impressive. Were you were you nervous about using that song? How, how did that come about? No, it just felt right. It just it just felt like the right song. I, I you know when something feels correct, I really try not to analyze it and second guess it. So um, I originally wrote the in the script. I think I had a spark song. Um, this town ain't big enough for the both of us to come in there, <laughs> and and I was really excited about that. Like that's what I had in my head for a year, but then on set, I just had this. It just felt like no, it needs to be. It needs to be the Ronettes. And then I found out after we put it in, I didn't. I didn't realize this or I'd forgotten. But Ronnie Spector basically lived this movie. You know, the woman singing that song was imprisoned in her house. For years, you know, Phil Spector literally held her prisoner and she had to escape like barefoot, like, you know, and I was just like, wow, that's just the universe once again, just kind of like pushing me in the right direction. 
there's a, a lovely way that you cut. I mean, the cut is so abrupt with the gunshot. Oh. The gunshot. <laughs> the gunshot's the opening drumbeat of that song, in a way. Right. And that was not in the initial cut. Like, I think we tested the movie first where, you know, the, the gunshot happens on the super wide shot. And then we have these shots of her getting up and like walking and the drums start then. And it just didn't feel good. It just felt like very anticlimactic. And I was like, oh, the movie's over. That was that sucked. Kind of. That was just like a bad beat to end it on. <laughs> and I was I was just kind of like, oh, no, like, you know, and I remember I called my editor really early in the morning. I was like, can you just try something when I come in? Can you just have something tried, like ready? We just like on the close up, let her pull the trigger and like have that be the, the, the cut. And it was like, I felt like no one's going to let me do that. It feels too weird. But sometimes when you feel like no one's going to let me, that's a really good, <laughs> you know, sign. Like if you feel like you're breaking a rule, it's like, follow that. And so, yeah, he, he lined it up and then we came in and it just felt right. It was like, this is punk as hell. Like this feels, this feels really cool. So nobody had a problem with it. Everybody got it. Everybody was into it. Amazing. Uh, one of the things yeah. I love about uh, love imagining about horror films is is the morning after, not in a sequel way, not in the, not in right, the, right. Uh, the story picks up and yeah. What happens to the these people in the aftermath of this? Do, do, have you worked it out? Does Tess get I the mean, job? I mean, she's does, traumatized. She doesn't yeah, get the job because she she's not coming back. You know, she. I mean, she she got the job, but that was two weeks ago. So she ghosted on the job interview. So <laughs> good point. So yeah. so no, the she doesn't have the job. Even if she did, she wouldn't want it anymore. She goes back to D.C. and I think she's very traumatized. I think she probably has to live with her, her mom for a couple of weeks and like drink soup and uh, probably start some EMDR therapy and <laughs> work on getting past this. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm fascinated as well by, about how you think AJ's story would be reported, not just in the trades, but in in the wider media. When you have someone famous like this who dies in this horrendous situation, is he uh, almost given a pass by the press or, or I don't think he's given a pass because the allegations are already out there. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's just, I think it's just a, uh, the already dark story of AJ Gilbride takes a bizarre twist, a, a bizarre fatal twist. And I think people probably was like, I, I don't know what to make of these events, but <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> I don't know what else you're going to say. <laughs> I'll wait for the Netflix documentary in two years. Yeah. Two years what a great now. question. No one has ever asked me that question. I love that. You, that's what you want to know. That's this is good. the shit that keeps me up at night, Zach. I'll, I'll be yeah, honest. I love it. <laughs> I'll be honest. That's awesome. But, but talking about AJ and talking about, you know, the idea of toxic masculinity and, and uh, the idea of being punished for his, his transgressions. And, and it's fairly clear that he is guilty uh, in sure. this. Was that, a theme that you had in your head when you sat down to write that those those first forty five pages and that that that, comf- that not of confrontation but the but the scene the encounter between Tess and Keith and I know you've talked about red flags in the past and wanted to write something about how women can sometimes ignore red flags. Yeah, I guess you know I started writing it with that in my mind, so I think I think it was a subconscious theme. Yes, I I, I really believe me when I say I wasn't very conscious about much as I'm writing this. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really true. I, I was not. Um, but, uh, you know, that I'm a pretty, I think about that kind of thing a lot. And so it's, it, that's part of my subconscious. So I, I guess it's only natural that it would come out on the, in the page. And then don't also, when I'm done with the first draft, then I go back and I very consciously put things in and take things out. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I definitely want, I think every movie needs to always be addressing the same theme in every scene, you know, like all movies should be kind of riffs on a central idea. And so the idea of this movie is clearly about gender inequality and sexual predation. So, so yes, I'm, I'm very 
deliberately making sure every scene is sort of about the same thing. Um, in fact, you know, there's a, the scene in the flashback where the neighbor is talking to Frank about, um, you know, we're moving Frank. Originally, I had him go on a big monologue about redlining, which is this practice in, in America in the, in the 50s, a, a racist practice of like who gets bank loans to buy houses in what neighborhoods. It was basically a way to keep people of color out of white neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. so I was going to put all of that in there. And then I, my producer very astutely was like, that's not what this movie's about. You know, like you can put it in, but like this is a movie about gender. And now you're putting all this race stuff in it and it's fine. But like, is that, you know, what story are we telling? And I, I actually think it was the right note. Not that I, I don't want to address issues like that, but it's just, you know, the movie needs to stay consistent. And so um, it just didn't feel like the right move. Of course. So, so with that in mind, with so you have that that central theme um, that you want to explore, and that obviously informed your choice of when you when the movie resets and switches to AJ that he mm-hmm. is a, a man who's been accused of rape. He is a a a a big star who is on the downslide. Obviously, there's so many people we can think of, so many parallels we can sure. we can we can draw uh, with that. Can you talk about about deciding to do that and deciding to explore? that in that way it felt that that was just like you know they say write what you know and obviously you know i've been an actor in hollywood for a while and so i know guys like this and um i know i know the it just felt like a character that i could write well um i could i could write that that for example that conversation he has in the car with his team you know like that's probably about how it would go if i if i may like that's that's pretty much how the tone of that conversation would play out and it was really fun for me to write a character who thinks he's in a horror movie already like he thinks that the events of him getting canceled is his own personal horror movie in fact that's probably how he would describe it you know if you were to interview him at the airport he's like i'm i'm in hell he has no fucking idea that he's actually in a real <laughs> horror movie and I, I think that's kind of the greatest thing is that it takes him so long to to observe his his true situation but but it's it, to me it's also it's like the aj chapter is the photo negative of the test chapter and that hers is about a woman who's forced to be hyper vigilant and hyper aware mm-hmm. and constantly categorizing behavior and because she was afraid she might be with a predator and then his is a predator who has no awareness you know who's completely oblivious to the damage that he's done and so as i pass them through the same crucible you know he has a completely different attitude you know the measuring is all very like you know it's it's funny but it's also it's like it's emblematic of of his mentality He's also a, a monster who is uh, denying his true nature, and you have I, that moment I, yeah, of awareness exactly. towards the end. Yeah, and you and I like the idea that for a moment we think this movie might be a redemption story for yeah. this guy, and and I hope everyone in the audience has a big groan and an eye roll when he has his little like moment of reflection. Um, but yes, it's uh, he he is a he is a monster. So is. In in terms of uh, the way we read movies traditionally, the mother, uh, although you know she gets this incredibly sympathetic moment towards the end with with Tess, which yeah. which I thought was really interesting. Thank you. Uh, well, I think all the best classic horror movie monsters are not evil. You know, King Kong and Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they're all they're not motivated by hate or evil. They're motivated by very just basic, um, you know human urges i guess king kong maybe not a human urge but you know i guess they anthropomorphized him a little bit so Mm -hmm. sure but i see the mother as a true innocent in this movie you know she never had a chance she was raised in this environment where she she existed in a binary you know she only had access to two forms of adult behavior you know 
horrific violence that she witnessed on from her father and like mother love that she witnessed from this videotape that she'd watched, you know, a hundred thousand times. And so she doesn't know any other way to function with people. And so um, I, I find that to be very understandable. You know, I find her very, um, yeah. And in, in an odd way, I think she's like maybe the only true innocent in this movie, even though she does like eviscerate three people. <laughs> Where did she come from? When you when you wrote when you sat down and you were writing that 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 moment with Keith and Tess in the tunnel, and a, a naked lady comes out of nowhere and smashes Keith's head against a wall. Well, she was born out of frustration with my own writing. Where I, was, okay. I felt like I'd written a boring scene and a boring boring you know thing, and it needed to change. And so she was just a perfect little bullet to kind of just like you know punch through my own frustration. But it was also, it was weird. I, it was subconscious. So I, I don't, I didn't think like all of her backstory. I just thought of her. And then the backstory just fit so perfectly. As soon as I'd written her, it was like, she does belong here. You know, if she, if she was born in this and she's part of, she's a copy of a copy of a copy and a product of like this, you know, terrible incestual, you know, whatever. Um, then of course she's down here and this is her lair and they've, they've trespassed and this is how she handles perceived aggression, you know? Um, so it all did kind of fit very instantly. Um, I, I guess it, it, it wasn't like I thought of the backstory and then thought of her, I thought of her and then I thought of the backstory. So how long did you, did it take you to think of, of, of the backstory and, and to work out the details of, of what she'd been up to and Frank had been up to? I'll just tell you the truth instantly. It just, <laughs> it was instant, you know, truly it just, it just made, it just all clicked. It clicked as I wrote her. I was like, yeah, this is where she's from. Similarly, AJ, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go to the beach and I wanted to talk to an actor and I just kind of, I, I swear to you, it just kind of unfolded to me in a, in a moment where I was like, yeah, he owns the house. He's getting canceled. He's going to go back and he's going to, he's going to find what she found. I just, I knew it in that scene before I wrote the phone call. I was like, this is what will happen to him. Um, and, and now I know I've said I don't think ahead and I don't outline. It's just, I just kind of like, that was just in me. I just knew like, that's where I'm going to like aim this missile. And um, and I probably wrote from AJ, from meeting him at the beach to like him getting down under the house for like two days. You know, it was like, it was wow. very fast. Now, this movie took me months to write. It yeah. was just, those, there were like those little explosive moments. And you and, go back um, and you finesse. And, and then you go back and you finesse yeah. and you agonize. And there is definitely moments, you know, I, I certainly don't want to sound like some subconscious savant, you know, like I, I, I lamented in so many days of just like, I, I this sucks. I can't, I can't solve it. Um, long walks, you know, writing, deleting, writing, deleting, like all of that stuff that every writer has, I, I completely have. Because I, I guess as well, the, the danger can be when you come up with something you know, that's so uh, incredibly um, indelible as you know, a couple of characters have a conversation, suddenly a naked lady comes out of nowhere and smashes one of them to death. Mm -hmm. The temptation is to kind of to have recourse to that shock value again. If you paint yourself into a corner, I'll just do something like that. If, you know, on your next script, I imagine you've had the one you're working oh, on yeah, right yeah. now. You've had to go no naked ladies smashing people to death. <laughs> well, no, that's not part of it. Um, <laughs> but but there are certain like structural pitfalls. I think my brain works in a um, in a in a in a different way with structure. And so, like right mm -hmm. now in the script I'm writing, it doesn't have a traditional structure. Also, and I'm trying to. I, it's hard for me to know myself and know I'm like. Am I doing this because I found success with this in the past, or am I doing this because this is what the story demands? And um, uh, I don't know the answer to that, you know. Um, but I, we'll I, I, th I think those are the most refreshing and exciting 
screenplays because I think there could be a kind of homogenization of of screenplays. Everyone's read the same books. Everyone's listened to the same teachers. Everyone's done the same thing. Everyone thinks about inciting incidents and three act structures and and whatnot. Yeah. And I remember Chris McQuarrie when he was talking about Usual Suspects. He said, "I didn't know the rules when I wrote Usual Suspects." Sure. Yeah, new mind, beginner mind, right? Yeah, that, that, that But of course, you, you do know the rules, you, so it's interesting that you're deliberately tearing them up in a way. Yeah, it wasn't a deliberate tearing. It was just, I, I, I was, I, Barbarian was just following my subconscious. Now, the script I wrote before Barbarian is the script that takes place in like the Batman universe. And, uh, you know, it was just for me. Again, it was like I was, I was shooting a TV show. I don't drink. Everyone else drank. So at night, I would go back to my room and just like write. And, um, and, I, and I deliberately hit all of the the structural beats you're supposed to. I got that save the cat book. And I was like, okay, page 12, I'm going to do my inciting incident. Act break, page 22. I'm doing it. Midpoint, page 55. Going to do it. And I and I made myself honor everyone just to see how it would work. And I'll tell you, I think I like that script even more than Barbarian. I, I really mean it. Like, I love <laughs> That's it. That's I thought so, you were going with that. <laughs> no, I know. I, but it's true. So like I, and when I hit a problem, I was like, oh, it's because I don't have the debate. That's why that's why my script isn't working. I when I put the debate in, it fixed everything. So just like those rules are great. Like they really do work. And I do use a lot of them even in Barbarian. For example, you know, like when Tess is at the top of the stairs and Keith is screaming, help me, you know, um, initially she just goes down the stairs and it didn't feel right. And 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 I was like, there's no debate here. She's embarking on the journey, but there's no debate. So I just wrote this moment and I knew how I was going to shoot it when I wrote it, that I was going to earn it. But like she turns back and she looks at the mirror, the reflection of the light in the mirror. It's just this weird kind of moment of just like her, just like, and but what she's doing is she's thinking, like, is this what I'm actually going to do? And then she and then he says, help me again. And she turns and she decides, yes, it is. And then she takes a step. If I didn't have that beat in there, I I, I know that like. A lot of people, I lose them at that scene anyway, because some people just like cannot wrap their head around a woman going down that staircase. That's so fair. I totally understand that. But I would have lost everybody, I think, if she just went down the stairs and didn't have a moment of reckoning. So even though Barbarian totally does flout a lot of these rules, it still plays by some of the most important ones. You need those beats, you know, and like the AJ turn that happens on page 55. Like that's you know, it, it is still like you still feel when you're watching Barbarian, I hope, like, you know, roughly where you are in the movie. You mm -hmm. can feel that you're moving towards a conclusion. You can, you know, the third act break is defined, you know. And um, so I, I think I think as much as there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, weird rule breaking stuff, there's a lot of rule following in Barbarian. And there's a lot of awareness as well of what audiences will be saying. You're absolutely right that people will be screaming, quite don't go down the stairs yeah, to test. Yeah. But they will also be saying, call the cops. And I love that you have a scene where she calls the cops. And again, playing on those themes you're talking about, she's not believed. She's not trusted. Yeah. I actually shot another scene where she calls the cops a second time right before she goes down. When Keith doesn't come back, she calls the cops again. But it just felt like, and I think that would have soothed a lot of people. Um, but also I wanted the momentum to keep it moving. So I didn't, I took it out. Yeah. But it is, it is about ultimately her being uncomfortable in this world, not being trusted. And, and almost every guy yeah. she comes up against with the exception of Keith, weirdly enough. But he doesn't believe her. You know, if, yeah. he, if she, if she had said, you know, don't go down there, it's something bad going on down here, which she said, mm -hmm. and he was just like, good enough for me. I trust you. Let's go. True. He would still True. be alive, you know, but he doesn't believe her. He's got to go see for himself. Yeah, that, that scene with uh, with the wine bottle where he is, where they're both so hyper aware of <laughs> yeah, the situation yeah. and he's yeah. overcompensating wildly. Yeah, yeah. And well, going that's, full that's me. that's me writing me, truly. <laughs> and, and also, she is me also. You know, I think that she is also behaving the way I, I would if I was a woman, I think, in that situation, taking the photo of the license and 
I, you know, so I, maybe it's, it's hard to know, but uh, mm. that's what I guess I would behave, uh, how I would behave in that situation. Uh, where did Tess come from for you? Was she, was she a difficult character to crack? No, no, she just came quickly. Um, I, I, I wrote myself. So I was like, you know, to me, I think of Tess's core, core issue is that she is a pleaser. You know, she's a child of an alcoholic. I'm a child of an alcoholic. And like one thing that we all have in common is the, is the desire to bend ourselves into whatever shape the person we're with needs. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of my life work to undo that in myself, but I wanted to write her as someone who suffers from that. And so, so um, you know, her whole, her whole journey in this movie is to uh, extricate herself from a toxic, a toxic relationship. And, you know, she's kind of talking about that on the couch with Keith, but um, this really, is Marcus, the, the, presumably. yeah, with Marcus. And there's yeah. a deleted scene where it gets deeper into that, but it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, the mother represents the ultimate uh, version of that toxic relationship that you, where you are infantilized. So literally infantilized. That's what the bottle is. It's like Tess like drinking from the bottle is Tess playing into this pattern that she's been playing her whole life. And so at the very end, you know, what she says on the couch, you know, she's like, my problem is I keep going back. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, she does. She goes back for Keith. She, she goes, goes back. back for AJ. And then the last thing she says to the mother before she pulls the trigger is like, I can't go back. Um, I don't care if anybody like, you know, connects those dots. It's not mm-hmm. important to me, but, um, mm-hmm. but it's important to me that I know it as I'm writing it is that this is a, this is a person who has to take control of their own relationships. And um, so that's what her, her journey in the movie is. Uh, fascinated always by how filmmakers start and end their movies. You talked about the end uh, already, but the uh, the beginning shot of the house. Tess pulls up, shrieking, <laughs> shrieking yeah. voices on the soundtrack, which suggests a supernatural element. It was a bit wrong. It's women's voices. On. Yeah, no, it's 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 women. So I'm just I'm just you know subconsciously, it's like this is a dangerous place for women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the camera comes out of the out of the out of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, little foreshadowing there pass through the glass that's me nodding to sam raimi from evil dead 2 when he puts the <laughs> camera through a car glass which is like the greatest thing i've ever seen in my life um he breaks the car glass were you tempted to do that he does no no <laughs> that would be insane um but uh yeah it just it's all of these things just come and if they feel right i don't i don't think about them again i just say that's what it will be um yeah, it didn't all come at once. You know, I was like talking to my DP. We we're standing on the street, and I had the idea to come out of the earth. And then I was like, "Oh, this is what we'll do. We'll dig a little trench here, and we'll we'll bring the camera up." And then the Legetti. You know, I was I was watching two thousand one in my hotel while we were in the middle of production, and I listened to the Legetti, and I was like, "Oh, well, well, this is what we'll do." And they'll, you know, so like these things just kind of come to you when they come, and you just let them in. You know. Amazing. And uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you is, uh, there's a couple of points in the movie where there's intimations or hints that the mother may not be the worst thing in in mm. that underground lair. Uh, Frank is obviously obviously a terrible, terrible person. You know, is there someone else that we haven't met? Is there a barbarian too in, in your mind? No, in my mind, it's Frank is who he's referring to. Um, now, I've definitely been um, asked about Barbarian 2 a lot. I, I, I initially was like, never, uh, no way in hell. I still kind of feel like that. But I think maybe there's a version of like, um, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a prequel that follows the mother. And I think that would actually be interesting. A movie where she's the central character before, you know, AJ, before Tess, where it's just like, what is her life? living there and maybe it's about her she comes out at night and like you know scavenges the neighborhood and gets sucked into a story of her own um i don't know if that's a movie anyone would want to watch uh i don't know if i'd want to make it but it's it's that's the only sequel 
idea I thought of that I think is, is, is interesting to me. Um, and then, you know, yeah, who's to say, like, she has a mother herself. Where's, what is that? Where's that thing? So maybe there's something else in there. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to do this, but it's fun to think about. Uh, to, to quote yourself, I can't go back. I can't go back. Yeah, <laughs> I can't go exactly. back. Amazing. Well done. Absolutely. Uh, Sack Reger, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that was Sack Kreger, and now it's time for us to get into Barbarian. Now, I, Amon, you have said a couple of things already that indicated you're actually not a fan of this movie, and I invited you here because <laughs> you are the most notorious Freddy cat in all of Empire. <laughs> mm. uh, so, did you see any of this movie? Is this why you're? <laughs> wh- where do you stand on Barbarian? Are, are you a little bit anti-Barbarian because you couldn't see it because your hands were covering your eyes? <laughs> What's the deal? Well, here's the thing, uh, Mr. Hewitt. I did enjoy this film. I need to always sort of preface where I'm going, if I'm a little bit negative with that sort of comment I've learned when doing this. But I did enjoy this film. I had a fun time with it. And there's a lot that it has going for it, which I'm sure we're going to get into in greater detail. But for me, I think that there are three things which I want to say up top, and maybe we'll get into more detail on it as we go through. No. (laughs) (laughs) This will be a five-minute podcast. (laughs) One, I think I was a victim of overhype Ooh. because this film was hyped like you would not believe on Twitter because it came out in the States, I think, what, two, three weeks before it came out? Vince here? McMahon himself could not have hyped this any better. <laughs> <laughs> and I was hearing like, you know, one of the best horror films of the year, best horror film of the year, four star here, five star there, you know. Here a star, there a star, everywhere a star is done. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, I, for me, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm at a high three, oh! which is still a recommendation. Shots I have fun, fire. good time with it. Like, you know, maybe if I was writing the review, I'd round up the three to four. Maybe it'll depend on how I was feeling. But I think for me, I was definitely a victim of overhype. The second thing, and this was a really big one for me, um, you know, I've talked about horror characters making dumb decisions uh-huh. previously before. I'm go- I now have a term for it, which I'd like to introduce uh, on this podcast today. All right, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to what I call Amon's horror threshold of stupidity. <laughs> I don't think that's going to stick if I'm honest with you. No, but, it's okay. going to stick. I'm going to make it stick over the course of this podcast. Oh, that's a dark thread if I've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> because it just got to a point... You keep your threshold of stupidity to yourself. <laughs> keep it where I can see it. <laughs> like, you know, I can take... The the limit like like go go to five go to six uh-huh. I'm okay uh-huh. here it it started off at zero which was great for me and then it slowly ramped up and then it went to ten and then the scale did not exist for some of the places this thing goes in terms of characters making dumb decisions and that is something which I want to come back to because I think for me nah. it drained a lot of the tension and some of the enjoyment. From the film because of some of the stuff the characters do. The third right. one oh, is the third thing. one. Oh, God. It's very interesting. I, I didn't say three. Just to jump in on your second point, it's very mm-hmm. interesting because I think the way that they handle... I can't take you seriously, Sophie. Sorry. <laughs> what you said You just see my eyes over the microphone. It's, it's like we've invited Jimmy Cranky to the podcast. I'll work on my posture. Hey, I'll sit up hey. straight. Jimmy has fantastic things to say. <laughs> it's all right. Jimmy thought this movie was fan dabby dozy, yeah. by the way. But yeah. anyway, carry on, please. What, like... The way that they justify some of the decision making, mm-hmm. 
I thought was one of the most interesting things mm-hmm. about the film. Yes, and I, I think I backs it up in a lot of really good ways. So I'm excited to get into that. Mm. Also, Sorry, I, th- I think you could boil this down to an acronym. I think you could go, instead of Amon's Threshold of Horror Movie Stupidity, mm-hmm. you could maybe have Ash and Amon's Stupid Horror something, <laughs> you know. Mm. And then, yeah, I think we'll, we, you can we'll work on that. We'll, you can work, we'll workshop it. it. Yeah, we'll workshop yeah, yeah. it. Uh, what's um, the third one? Go on. The third one you're going to be really surprised by. No, I don't know. You've built that up now. I hope you deliver. No. Come on. I didn't think this was all that scary. No, I agree with that. Oh, well, there you go. Um, Yeah, I think... It's not the most horror-filled horror that you've ever seen. Honestly, the the, the first 30 minutes or so was really, really working for me, me, and it was, for me, the strongest part of the film, Mm -hmm. easily. Okay. Um, And then when things take a turn, that sort of... Yeah, I, I think I think it becomes more disgusting and more gory, and that definitely comes through. It but becomes in terms of a actual scares. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't really feel that. So honestly, for well, I me, think that's a very deliberate choice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Helen texted me. Uh, so I saw this uh, in a way that I didn't really want to see it, which was on my computer with my name on the screen, mm. uh, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, but it still worked for me, mm. and I, I, you know. I had heard a lot about the movie, but I was trying to avoid all the hype and stuff. So, but, you know, so I didn't really know what was in the cellar. I knew something was in the cellar. Uh, did I find it massively scary? I found it pretty scary. I found it pretty effective in the way that Zach Kreger uh, sets up and stages all of those uh, sequences. But I was more tickled by it. And I was more tickled by the audaciousness mm-hmm. of the filmmaking and by the audaciousness of what he was doing structurally. Yeah. And I just thought mm-hmm. this is a really, really fun and inventive horror film. For me. Now, I saw it, I think I saw it first out of this group, and then, Helen, you, so, yeah. you saw it at a big screening with people. Yes. What was yes. that okay. like? I was there as well. So, okay. yeah. What was that like, first of all? Because I've been told that this is a really good audience movie. Yeah, it played it was really fun. super, super well. There was laughter, there were screams, mm. um, there were screams of laughter. Uh, I think it, it was it was a brilliant, brilliant screening. Actually, yeah, so. it, it really was really fun to watch it with an audience. Yeah. There was yells of, no, nah, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> and also, when, when she goes, nope, and refuses to yeah. go into the scary thing, the entire audience just went yeah. bananas. Because 100%, that is exactly the right attitude. And you know, and and I thought that it sold it up until the, like I, I, at that point, and and for a little bit beyond that point, I was very much with her on she is making reasonable decisions. She okay. is making understandable, reasonable decisions. Okay, yes, yeah, she went into a house with a scores guard, which we should talk about because we always say scores guard, and apparently that's wrong. Yeah, um, apparently a scores scores guard. Apparently a scores guard. I've been corrected since by okay. another Swede. Oh, I'm really confused. Who said <laughs> it's scores guard? So the little, okay. the little. Mm. Let's just say above the she goes into yes. a house with Pennywise, which is a bad idea because <laughs> they all float think. down there. They all float, and <laughs> and but but that turns out okay. You know that turns out all right, mm. and she is reasonably sensible about it, and she isn't you know sort of. Um, immediately letting your guard down. You know, there's there's a there's a period of thawing out. It sort of works. Um, even going down into the cellar, they sell that. It's the middle of the day. It's bright sunshine. She just needs a loo roll. She goes into the cellar to get a loo roll. It's visible from the top of the stairs. Yeah. This is not a scary thing. It's just a house. You know, we've all stayed in, or many of us have probably stayed in Airbnbs and similar. And no. you know, there are moments where you're a bit like, is this okay? But at the same time, like it is. Um, so. That all kind of worked for me. And then the fact that she immediately said nope when that door opened, 100% worked for me. The fact that she then sat on the stairs and was like, I've got nothing else. I've got no other way of getting out of here. Maybe yeah. there's something down there that I could use. Maybe if I, you know, 
rig up a light so I can see what's down mm. there, that'll be okay. Again, that kind of worked for me. The The only thing, the only place where it starts to get very, very unbelievable is where your guy has disappeared. She finds the second door with the scary stairs and goes down there. That's a little bit more, what the fuck are you doing, girl? Well, because but she might be thinking that, that he's trapped, he's laying she, a trap he's trapped for her. He, no, no, not that he's laying a trap, but like he is, I think she thinks at that point, I think the film wants you to think that she thinks that he is in trouble because there are cries coming from the bottom mm. of the stairs. So maybe she thinks he fell or something. But that was like, so like, I get that. That's where it sort of pushes it, I yeah. think, to the limit. Yeah. Well, you kind of get it because it's built up this a kind, kind of, of charming rapport between mm. them. But that whole period for that whole first third of the film, you're like, is he the badden? Like, mm. is. And when she's going further and further down, and you can hear the cries, and you, she's getting more and more stressed out, and you think, yeah, she's worried he's in trouble. But you, as the audience member, is also like, is he in trouble or is he luring her there? And you don't know and they drag it out for so long and you can't quite tell. And even when he turns up, he says the danger is behind you. Yeah, like, you so still don't know then. it's not as simple as let's go backwards. Yeah, you still don't know until he gets his head smashed against yeah. the wall. So I, yeah, it pushes it to the very limit of like feasibility, I think, that she would go down. Yeah. But I, I bought it and I think it worked really well. Okay, all right. We'll get to whether that was one of Amon's triggers for his threshold of uh, horror movie stupidity or Spoiler not. Spoiler alert, it was. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But Helen texted me after she saw the film and said, "Are we? Uh, I, I propose we do a spoiler special for this movie. To which I replied, where have you recorded the interview last night? <laughs> uh, and then you said, because I need to work out my trauma. Ooh. Well, do you know what's weird about this? Is Because I, I did find it very, very scary, even though... I had read the entire plot synopsis on Wikipedia. Why did you do that? I don't know. I don't oh, usually do that. I really don't usually that's, that's do that. Usually but basically, do. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, you you read. I mean, you've like read the whole of Game of Thrones without touching I a book. Still can't you know, believe you've done um, that. I, I think Just basically like what happened is I I hadn't heard a lot of the hype really until sort of the week before the screening, and then I sort of went to see who was in it, what was it about, because I hadn't been keeping up on what was happening at all with horror mm-hmm. movies. And uh, and then it was all there on the Wikipedia page, and I was like, well, I mean, you know, that might, I am a scaredy cat, so that might be good to know what's going to happen. So I read the whole synopsis, and I'm like, oh, that's cool, that's interesting, I haven't kind of come across this before. Um, and it totally didn't help me, because I was still absolutely terrified. I, I knew who was going to die, and in what order, <laughs> still terrified. Um, and it was, it's it's all that creeping dread of being in a dark, enclosed, underground space, and not knowing at from moment to moment what is coming for you. That is a dependable horror thing that will always scare me. All right. Okay. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Um, for the people who didn't read the Wikipedia uh, entry beforehand, <laughs> I'm presuming that's, that's you and, and Amon Sof, uh, did, what did you see coming, basically? So I think one of the great things about this movie is the way it just takes left field turns out mm. of nowhere. So, you know, the mother appears kills Bill Scoresgord um, and then the next thing we see is Tess screaming and then we cut to a completely different character yeah. and a completely different milieu and uh, and it's and the film just switches gears completely so did you okay did you know Justin Long was in the movie first of all? No. I think I actually did but I'd forgotten okay. I think I'd seen that he was in it Okay. Um, but That's I'd like forgotten about it until he showed up mm. I wasn't mm. like waiting for him and then when he appeared, I was like, oh yeah, Justin Long's in this film. Yeah, um, we, we tiptoed around this on the review on the regular podcast yeah. last week. I don't even think 
it only came up whenever Georgina Campbell, who plays Tess, was was the second guest on last week's regular pod. And she said, oh, and then there's a bit with Justin Long in it. But we didn't mention that. Yeah. Because I thought even to say Justin Long's name would be, mm. it sets up an expectation that, oh, Justin Long is going to appear at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I certainly didn't expect the manner in which Justin Long appeared. And obviously all the questions, all the thematic avenues that that opens up as well are, are very, very mm. interesting. We'll, mm. we'll get into that for sure. But you didn't know any of that stuff. You didn't know the yeah. serial killer stuff. You didn't know the mother. You didn't know any of that stuff. Nope. I'd okay. watched the first trailer that dropped and then because it was getting a lot of hype, I'd kind of tried to avoid reviews. I'd avoided watching the second trailer, I think, that dropped. I, um, I think there's only been one trailer for this. Was there only one? Yeah. There was only one trailer. Fair. Um, yeah. But I did watch that first one when we wrote it up, but I don't I didn't watch it many times. I can't I, I can only remember, and it doesn't show you a lot. It only shows you um Tess and um what's his yeah. name? Keith. Keith yeah. meeting. Pilots one listener. And now he's gone. Yeah. Sorry, pilots. <laughs> <laughs> it only really showed you that, so it didn't really give you much of a clue. And so I went in really blind. But I really liked the structure of it I liked that it built you up to this climax and then sort of took you back down and then slowly just as slowly as it did the first time built you back up to it again and then even did it again mm-hmm. like that's one of the <laughs> things that I like about the film I think there's an argument for saying that it does kind of like does that lose the tension maybe that sort of affects how you feel when you're watching it maybe that's a problem I'm on had with it it's actually not I all the stuff that you just said, I really like. Yeah. As, as I said, there's, there's lots of stuff that I like, but we're going to agree. You're high three. We're, you're high three. We're, we're going to agree a lot on this point, I'm yeah. sure. But if we can rewind a little bit to before the first time that happens, when she's going downstairs, let me just say this. Sophie, I've known you for over a year. You're becoming a fast friend of mine. I, I, this is really, I, I, I like See, I've come I like to with people I've met, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen, we've known each other for years. Chris, we've known each other for years. You're good people. You're friends of mine. You know, you know. There, there, there's love here. I feel the love. There's love. There's I receive love. it and I feel it and I Remember give it back to you. Okay? Keep, keep your hands right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. If I open a door, there are dark stairs leading to darkness uh-huh. and I hear you screaming and I hear you screaming and I hear you screaming for help know that I am not coming <laughs> okay I got, oh, I got oh, love oh, for oh, you oh, oh, I got oh, love oh. for you but it's not gonna happen it's not, it's not a personal thing so, it's just not gonna happen I'm not coming down there mm, I'm you, running in the opposite direction because it's you guys maybe I'll you know, make a phone call ask for help you know do all of that but I'm running in the other direction maybe. Okay, so so you don't like this movie, or you're slightly, no, 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 no wait, let, let, you're slightly down this movie mm. because it has shone a mirror on you, <laughs> and you have found yourself Your wanting <laughs> in certain places. Because let me tell you this. Okay, let me tell you this. Right. If I opened a door mm-hmm. and I heard you screaming, mm-hmm. and I heard you screaming, Sophie, and even if I heard Helen screaming, wow. I would go down there and I would go. Is everything all right? Okay. <laughs> And then I would go up and I would call the police. That's what I would do. That's maybe what well, Tess should have done. Maybe but what then, Tess should have as done. As we see, that, that, that kind of falls in deaf ears. Yeah, I do love yeah. that the police are, I don't love that the police are as useless as they are, but I do love it from a narrative standpoint. I yeah. do love that yeah. it shows the limitations I love she calls them at of least. the call the police argument because it isn't a fix-all, it doesn't cure everything, and they are spectacularly unable and unwilling to help and and not in a totally unbelievable way. No. It's not a racial thing uh, although there may be some elements of that to it but but 
you know, it's not sort of the, the sort of stereotypical like racist white cop, which yeah. is a stereotype because it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is another black man who just has is tired of people in this neighborhood, maybe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, he it, just doesn't believe her. It's what makes the setting, the Detroit setting, mm-hmm. so good and like in mm-hmm. that area. So like that all ties into it because then when that police thread comes along, then you're looking at. You're looking at Tess like the cops are looking at her, and you're thinking, "Do yeah. I do what? Would I believe her if I was them? I don't know. Maybe yeah. I would. You like to think you would, but you can. It makes it all the more work, yeah. like even better. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Now on that, we agree again. Um, <laughs> I feel like we need like a buzzer or something whenever you agree. Um, <laughs> I get what you mean that like they they do really well to build up their connection, but I think she they she hasn't known him that long. Is that is if my best friend know, was yelling, there was nothing that would stop me from going down those stairs. But a guy that I met the night before, I don't hours. know. No, but they do have a nice little sort of you know rom com energy in that scene, and it um, does yeah. it does sell a connection. And she's also let's face it, a lot braver than any of us. Like I feel yeah. like that. Yeah. So that's not something we should condemn in a person. I'm not denying the rom com energy. I would watch a rom com between George. Gina Campbell and Bill Scoresgard tomorrow. Make that. There's actually a really good uh, tweet that I saw uh, with the tagline for Romcon. I think it was like, um, uh, let me get it up. I did see someone make a poster. As yeah. I was watching it, I yeah. was like, this is a great setup for a Romcon. As I was watching the first film. <laughs> yeah. well, and the I mother... was like, this could be a very different film and you would like buy it. Yeah. 100%. If, if the mother is a cannibal, I, I can't remember if that's established or not. Then obviously you've got Eat Cute, you've got When Harry Ate Sally, you've got all sorts <laughs> oh, of, wow. this is you know, just, yeah. headless in Seattle. Here we go. <laughs> okay, here we go. From the producer of How to Train Your Dragon 2, she booked an Airbnb. He booked her heart. Aww. Oh, Barbarian. Um, <laughs> also, you've got male, but M A L E. That's uh, uh-huh. But that could also be a porno. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Almost certainly. So already. could win Harry Ate Sally, let's be honest. But, but, oh, no. But, yeah, but, 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 I mean, I. I We've gone down a road here. <laughs> as, dark, as dark a path as, as dark. anything a barbarian. Yeah. As much as I like that energy, like, to elaborate on my point a little bit further. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> what? No, it's okay. What? No, no, no. You're, you're, you're having fun. <laughs> when the film starts off showing her being smart, that was really, really cool to me for so many reasons. Chief of which was because, okay, this woman is smart. She's making smart decisions, even though she shouldn't, like, the bit first big flag. I'm not sure I would have gone to the Airbnb in the first place. But she's making smart decisions when she's actually there. She's locking the doors. She's not eating or drinking anything that she mm-hmm. hasn't seen. I was like, okay, this is good. When you then establish a character like that and then have her make some of the decisions that she's making, the reason why I liked it when she was at zero in my horror threshold of stupidity was... Because when she's acting like that, I'm like, what's the thing that's going to trip her up? It's a tense thing because I'm wondering, because she's so smart, what's the thing that I should be looking out for? What Mm. is the one mistake that she's going to make that's going to make everything blow up? Then she goes from a character who is smart to a character who is not smart in fairly short order. The thing that trips her up is him, and I think. And but how just, you know that's, I, that's there the is, thing. There is very much a connection there between the two of them. You can mm. you can see it that they're 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 both attracted to each other. That's very very clear. And you get the sense that if it wasn't such a fucking weird situation that something might have happened that yeah. night between the two of them because they're they're clearly there's 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 stuff there's going on. A there's a chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. It felt a little bit to me like this was a white person 
writing for a black character. Because believe me, if it was a black writer writing for a black character, they would not have this person make some of the decisions that she does. That I can guarantee. I think there's always going to be a limit of how believable that like actions can be in this sort of film. But I think that that barbarian does as well as it can possibly can to sell you on why those things happen. And yeah. I agree to a point. My final point in this, and then we can move on, is that if they didn't establish her in the beginning as being so smart, I could have taken where the film goes a little bit more. Isn't there but, a point where she has taken certain small, reasonable, yeah. understandable risks? They have paid off yeah. in the sense that she has not had to sleep in her car in the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, she has, you know, met a nice guy. She has had a non-scary um, experience. Uh, things seem to be going well. That she can push it a little bit and push it a little bit. Like, I don't... To like, a degree, yes. But then, in the first 25 minutes, yes, there are decisions like that where it's more understandable why she's doing what she's doing. But later on, self-preservation has to come into mind. And I feel like, it felt like in the moment I knew I was watching a horror movie because of the decisions that the character was making. In the first 25 minutes, I didn't feel that way because of the writing Mm -hmm. and because of how they were building it up. There was a big change there. But like in the second half, she is about self-preservation as well. And But I think because she's trying to keep him alive as well because she thinks he's going to help her stay alive. Understandably, yeah, and... having been completely isolated with a monster, as she sees it, in a in a cave for, uh, what, a month, two months, something like that? Couple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Months, she is... Well, a couple of weeks, sorry. Yeah, a couple sorry. of weeks, sorry, yes. Mm. She is trying to keep the other person alive because she is that person. We've seen that already. They have established that she is a person who cares about other people in multiple ways, you know, from the work she does to everything else, mm. that she wants to get the other guy out as, as well. She won't mm. leave someone behind. Yeah, I buy that she would go back for just a long, even though well. she knows him yeah. even less than she knew. Yeah, because he's Keith. another human and she doesn't yeah. want to leave another human in that situation. She has compassion and I think that's kind of a commendable thing, mm-hmm. even if it leads her to do unwise stuff. Like, mm-hmm. So, you know, to an extent, I think it's horror rules apply and to an extent, it's we can't ding her for being more heroic than we are. Yeah. The, the, the final act stuff, I'm with you. Uh, more than I am in, sort of, in terms of the, the setup to actually get her there, for sure. But for me, the balance is off um, All right. in the way My that God. it clearly isn't for you. We have to have you do a Friday the 13th spoiler, uh, Amon. <laughs> your, your, your threshold will be, you know, destroyed. You'll be off the charts with that one. Uh, there's a couple of things in the movie that I did kind of uh, quibble with. But in a kind of in a kind of fun way. And I understand that you have to you have to overlook certain things and and paper over certain cracks in order to keep a movie like this going. Uh, one of which is that there are no hotels at mm. all in that town. In fairness, she buys that pretty quick. In f- she? I mean, yeah, she does. She does buy it quickly. But in fairness, I have. I once flew into Amsterdam, and there were so many conventions happening at once in Amsterdam that the nearest hotel I could get was in a place called Groningen, which is halfway across the Netherlands. <laughs> so it absolutely can happen. Um, that I guess if you're you going to. San Diego, a Comic-Con, like a San right? Diego yeah. Comic-Con time, or, you know, yeah. uh, I, I I, don't have a massive problem with that. I think she accepts it awfully quickly, but I'm, I'm willing to accept that as screenwriting, you know, sh- yeah. shorthand rather yeah. than... Maybe there's a 10-minute sequence that was deleted exactly. where she, she's on she's Google. Google. Yeah. 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 <laughs> she's doing that. Okay, there's that one. The other one I have, and this is going right to the end of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't ask Zach Craig this because I didn't think he would, <laughs> he would <laughs> see it as a particularly respectful question, but uh, <laughs> is... Gravity, right? Mm. Now, 
my understanding of gravity is <laughs> that if two things, it doesn't matter what weight they are necessarily, if you throw two things off the top of a building, one's not necessarily going to overtake the other one if it's heavier, right? Yeah. Or got more momentum. Mm -hmm. So the end of the film has the mother well, jumping off the water tower yeah. seconds after Tess so, is thrown off the water yeah. tower and she manages to somehow get under Tess. Now that yeah. works with James Bond. I'll get it. I can understand James Bond he's doing calling, it or he's Spider Man. He's falling from a higher height. I, look, I, yeah. there is there is an element, I guess, of wind resistance. If Tess is falling in a sort of lying position, right, she is presenting more wind resistance she's, than someone who is that. in a sort of diving yeah. position, diving. which the mother is. Okay, maybe that. But like, yeah, I I, I tripped over that slightly. But as it's well. not. It's, it's not t t physics. The laws of physics again. Are I'm not, not sure 100%. I cared by that point. Okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it, was was just, like, it was just me who slightly yeah, bumped up against that. Yeah, and it was like. I know what you mean. And also the way that um he shot that and sort of the the mother like diving towards the camera like got a laugh in our screening, which like I'm guessing he was going for in the way that he framed it and the way that he shot it. But I'm not sure. Was it were we meant to laugh? I don't know. I think mm. we were. It was, this like, might it was be one kind of those of movies a... where if you laugh, he goes, You were meant to laugh. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't, <laughs> he you go, was I'm like, totally serious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, there's lots of like laws of physics stuff, I think, about the mother. Uh, if I'm honest, and that's fine. She's a horror movie monster. Yeah, I mean, and and monster is perhaps uncharitable because yeah. she's also a victim. But she's a tragic monster. In the, yeah, in the grand style. In the grand style, but yeah. um, at the same time, I think uh, you know you have to allow for the laws of physics not applying to a monster. Uh, the real monster, of course, her father. I thought that was a really interesting scene. We we should probably talk a little bit about him. Mm. Again, I'm tripping a little bit over the timeline of her being the product of generations. Yes, of inbreeding. Um, she's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy but that doesn't make that sense that doesn't quite make sense unless he's the product of you know generations of you know rapist murderers so so that didn't 100% make sense to me but okay fine and and she is clearly a tragic victim as well as anything else that she is not out to kill people she possibly doesn't even understand really what killing people is um, it's just fulfilling some kind of weird need that she has in mm. her completely uneducated, probably grown up in a cage situation, mm -hmm. I think. She, yeah, she's a child, isn't he? So how, how, how old do you think she is? See, I got the impression she was about 40. Like, I got the impression mm. yes. she had been there for a while. See, I thought she was the mother, she was a, the daughter of the woman that we see him stalking and taken into the, the, the Frank character. But then he, she's not generations, you know, so it, yeah. it doesn't, but, yeah. but I don't know, the generations thing doesn't quite work for me. However, I try to parse it. She doesn't Unless, seem like she's... I mean, 20, for example. This is also obviously gruesome territory to get into, but mm. if Frank is bringing him back to his cellar basement and he's raping them and then they're having kids and then having his way with the kids as well and then they're producing children as soon as they can, I guess she might be a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy if we're being generous at we're best. We're being very generous with the timeline. Yeah. You're still talking, you know, what... I, I, this is gross. Uh, anyway, I don't but, want to talk yes. about it. But I mean, we've yeah. already done enough chat about incest and the freaking House of the Dragon. Yeah. Spoilers. I don't think it was um, enough, if I'm honest with you. Oh, God. <laughs> but, um, but no, he is, he is clearly... It's, it's interesting to me that, you know, she, as soon as Justin Long gets to his door, she retreats. Um, mm. she, won't, she won't go near him willingly. Yeah. So there's very much, a, there's a real monster and a, you know, subordinate monster here. There's an mm. emperor and a Darth Vader. Yes. Here. Yes, um, there is. There is. And it did feel like a little bit of a, when I heard that that was the explanation of, of why she was like that, I did think, hmm, I don't, 
So I don't know if I like I like that she's a sympathetic monster, but that it was like, oh, you know, it's because of these generations of mm. whatever's happened. I thought that's a very traditional uh, uh, movie monster yeah, thing. Though. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's hills of eyes and, and yeah, things like that. Yeah, and, yeah. It, it, felt, a, it felt a little bit like there's a little bit of demonization of the other. There's a little bit yeah, of, of that going on. There is, and and I, look, I, you know, one critic I saw called this movie misogynistic, which I don't think is fair. But I do see that there's a there's an element of um, you know the female body being used mm. as an object of uh, ridicule and yes. and uh, and horror here, especially which is like a kind of we don't know how old she is, but especially mm. like a kind of aging female body. I think that happens again mm. and again that that's used as like a a gross thing. We've we've even seen it in like X this yeah. year, or like it happens a lot. Yeah. And that part of it did sort of like. That also rubbed me up the wrong way a little bit. A little that bit. that's kind yeah. of why you're meant to be so afraid of her. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as to call it misogynistic for that, but it is no. unpleasant for that reason. And and I I also feel like the the focus on motherhood as mm. an instrument of horror is also something that is a little bit played out at times. I think it works actually really well here, but it didn't feel as fresh as a lot of the rest of the film did for me. Yes, absolutely. Like the 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 tone and the structure and the the swings between comedy and horror were great. But when, like, like when Amon said it's not that scary, I kind of agree with that because when you actually get into the horror, like when you actually unpick like what's happening, that didn't really feel that fresh to to me in in any way. I still think it worked generally, yeah. mm. and I found it very entertaining. But the kind of machinations of of the monster underneath, sort of, that was the bit I least liked about yeah, it. I, I think, think me too. But at the same, like I find the second half basically very entertaining like mm. fantastic jump scares fantastic the monster's dead oh no he isn't kind of stuff fantastic like um you know uh, subversion of your expectations mm-hmm. you know when with the with the rapist father and the gun fantastic fantastic scene uh having justin long be also accused of rape be also you know mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. A, a, a disgraced guy coming into this situation i thought was a really interesting aspect of the film that we need to talk more about mm-hmm. um uh, so I thought it was, and it was delivering comedy, it was delivering jump scares, it was delivering sort of action, you know, in a way that the first half doesn't. Loved all of that. It's just, yeah, it's, I still have these tiny nits mm. to pick. But it is wildly entertaining. If the first half scared me more, the second half pro- maybe was more entertaining, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. It's a fun movie. Um, the second half, definitely, it sacrifices tension for just plain old fun yeah. mm-hmm. um, in the way that I did enjoy uh, to a degree. Uh, <laughs> there are a couple of things that I didn't see coming as well. Um, you, you were right in that it's a subversion of expectation from in many elements. Um, even Bill Skorsgård's casting. Um, Penny, oh, yeah. Pennywise, that's, you think, mm-hmm. you, that's as, as, as Sophie mentioned, that there's something off with him right until the moment that he's he gets killed. Um and there are many other instances besides where it's constantly giving you one thing and then something else happens. And I enjoyed that. I think the, uh, the casting is really, really clever mm-hmm. because I think it also subverts Justin Long yes. as well, mm-hmm. yeah. who has always been this incredibly likable, kind of gawky presence in movies. He's very funny. I still remember I was on set of Jen Silent Bob Reboot and <laughs> Kevin Smith was showing me 
the courtroom scene where you know that they'd shot and Justin Long appears in it as um, a lawyer who I think is meant to be his Brandon St. Randy character from Sakamiri Mega Porno I think it's meant to be anyway but but Kevin Smith who's worked with some of the most the, the funniest people on the planet said Justin Long no word of a lie is the sharpest funniest dude I've ever worked with like he is so quick and you get all that in mm-hmm. this. He's, he is very funny and he's playing a, a, a reptilian, reprehensible oh, yeah. piece yeah. of shit. Mm-hmm. But because he's Justin Long, he gets you on his side and you think, is this a redemption arc? Is Are we going to be, you know, you know, are we going to be made to feel some sympathy for this guy? And then obviously, no, nope. no. not at all. Because <laughs> the film's like examining the nature of like predators yep. and mm. predatorial like f- f- through Keith. Justin Long, um, Frank, is it the old guy? Frank, it's yeah. like all these generations of like predators and how they work and how it's evolved and what women have to do to kind of um, sort of assess men when they meet them. And that's why I really liked that whole portion at the beginning between Tess and Keith. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's not. He's not he's a not. predator. No, he's uh, not. Which is interesting. No, you, you, you would say that you know, if, if the movie has tears of mm-hmm. predatoriness, then obviously Frank is at the top. Then we have AJ in the middle mm. as well and then we're meant to think that Keith we're meant to think mm. that Keith is is a bad one but I actually think he's got good intentions and he just means well but they're mm. both very aware of the situation that they're in and they're mm-hmm. both very aware of the subtext the modern subtext yeah. of all their mm. exchanges and all their conversations and it's about navigating your way through that space well Keith is very aware of, na- of, of it you know not yeah. opening the wine shows that yes AJ he even, brought, he even draws attention to it yeah. yeah AJ I don't think is aware of that because like he you see you see that conversation with his friend where he's talking about what happened mm-hmm. yeah, with, the, yeah. uh, with the star of his show. That was horrible. And it's obvious that he did exactly what he was accused of and mm. just doesn't know it yet. It's like, you know, it's like the, um, it's like in The Last Duel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Adam Driver's story, no spoilers, but Adam Driver's story is substantially exactly what she says as well. So it's, mm. it's not, um, it's not sort of a, a, a clear-cut situation where he knows he's done something wrong. I think he only begins to realize it and then he doesn't do anything about it. Like, I think when he goes into Frank's room and he sees those tapes, and he sees what's on those tapes, I think there's a, there's a glimmer almost of recognition, mm-hmm. and then it's almost like it goes away again. Yeah, almost. Yeah. Almost. I've seen some people say that, you know, that they were worried that the film was trying to exonerate him in, in, a, in a certain way. Absolutely he, not. When he goes not. in to no. see that, did you think, oh, this is what a real monster looks like, and I am not that. But I don't think it does. No. No, not at all. It all, like almost again goes down that path and because you say Justin Long's really likeable you kind of kind of want mm-hmm. him to like realise and be the hero or whatever but then it doesn't let him off that easily I don't yeah. think it and then he throws her off the bloody roof oh, well, this is it. And when like, I knew it, that was going to happen which I was like what? you fucking prick <laughs> it is very clear that's what a mon would do <laughs> yeah, yeah I know self preservation like, here come on I'm he's not chucking any bad. of us off that water tower I'm not, literally if you, if you it was you're out of the basement you know there's we're going to be fine if you're not in a scary place like that I will help you I'm on your side no, no issues. You're but still in the scary neighborhood. No, no, you're on top fine. of a water tower with the mother yeah. after you. It's fine. I got you. Don't What's worry. your choice? You. Throw me off yeah, the water you, tower or fight mother. I'll fight mother. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now you're willing to fight mother. <laughs> Not sure I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Where does that sit on the threshold of stupidity? <laughs> because I can see, so I got full vision. There's no darkness or whatever. You know, and the film weaponizes darkness really, really well. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Talk about how well, how well made this film is because mm. it's yes. really, really well made. Um, 
But but yeah, it's the whole you know don't, don't be silly but and don't it, go downstairs it, to like a whole. Is it creepy better ass when basement. you can see the nine foot tall monster coming for you? Yes. <laughs> you think that's less? It's better than you're that. In, you're than in an the, enclosed the, space. You're in an enclosed area on top of the water tower. You have sheer drops on all <laughs> sides, and you can see the nine foot tall monster coming for you, and you're totally cool with that. I'm not saying I'm totally <laughs> cool with that, but I mean, I'm saying, let, let, let me explain. I'm not saying I'm totally cool with that. I'm saying that in comparison to the other scenario where I can't see the nine foot tall monster coming <laughs> and then he bashes, well, she bashes my brains in, then the scenario that you're proposing is preferable because I can at least see. But my what girl. do you do? I would like yeah, to I, say, in terms of reasons for people to go down at the dark cellar, um, AJ seeing it as a real estate opportunity I was thought was great. fucking was brilliant was so good. I was, was like great. that feels like the like um, sort of stem of an idea like what if there was a horror basement but instead of being scared you were like more square footage <laughs> and you're like let's keep measuring that felt you know like the nub of an idea that they sort I of need, like yeah. built out yeah. I was laughing yeah. that whole time I, yeah. I don't know if anyone else signs in his eyes. Yeah. I, I don't know would you okay so would if the mother comes up on the water tower uh -huh. the roof of the water tower uh -huh. would you wait until the last second do a duck and roll Duck and roll. Hopefully, I'd have a weapon on me. You but don't. You don't. You don't, you don't have a weapon. Have a weapon. I'm not sure you, you would. I, I, You've dropped. But the you gun. don't have a weapon. You've dropped the gun. Just, You're in exactly the same situation. Say you would push us okay. off the tower and admit. Tess and no, no, I wouldn't. You would never. do it. You would push. I would push all of you off in a heartbeat. <laughs> I, I feel like you'd try to maneuver your way around to the edge of the tower, where nearest where the stairs are. You know, at a reasonable level where you could drop back onto them and run back down. I try and goad the monster into leaping, dodge at the last second, and then the monster would leap off, and I look down on him like, "Yeah, I got you." I think the answer is what Tess did, which is play along, and she won't hurt you. Yeah, and then, then you'd you be are, able to get out somehow. Then you are li living the rest of your life in no, 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 but not forever. Man. Play along until okay, but she'll you know. take you back to her lair. No one, you'd find a chance somehow, <laughs> like tested, to get how away. Long, how long are you willing to... I just to... mean on the top of the water tower, you know? It's like an especially precarious situation. Mm. I'd play along till I was into a better place to get away. That's my plan. But yeah, I, th I think it is, it, is, <laughs> it is remarkable how much of a dickhead AJ is. Mm -hmm. Like mm. The, the shooting her by accident thing, which oh, he also God. does. Which I saw coming and she, as well. Like, yep, it feels like there's enough light on her that even a moment's consideration would show she's not the monster you're scared of. Like, she's not in pitch darkness at the point where he shoots her. Mm -hmm. And there is, a, there is an almost seconds pause before he shoots her. So I think there's an element there where we're supposed to be suspicious of him from that point, if we weren't already. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you were still hoping for redemption, I think at that point you're like, oh no, this, this guy is a shithead. This guy is an absolute liability. Um, because there is, there is just enough time that... I, I don't buy it as an entirely as an accident. I think it's... it's you uh, think? Well, not, not in the sense that he wanted to kill her, but in the sense he was reckless too. Yeah. Although he does have that moment when they sort of get out and they're in the water tower and he's like, does he? I've only seen this once where he's like, I've, I've hurt someone and you can see him kind of having the realisation about whoever the girl is that he raped. You can see him saying that he's hurt someone. He doesn't want to hurt people. So you can see like he's almost... There's Again. a moment but of self-realization. Yeah, yeah but, then, but then he freaking tries to oh, yeah. sacrifice yeah. somebody else's oh, yeah. life yeah. to save his that, own. He does. That bit was just like, screw this guy. But far be it for me to defend the douchebag that is AJ. I 
get it to a degree in terms of him shooting her because you are freaked out. There's yeah, darkness like everywhere. Just like... You've just been attacked by this creepy old monster lady. I would be shooting everything that moves and asking questions later as well. I feel like we've learned a lot about Amazon. I think we have. I think our mistake oh, is putting them all near the door because now none of us can get out. No. I I nope. understand. I don't agree with it. I understand. That's all. That's all. That, that that specific but again, that's moment. Not, but that's not like heroism. That's not redemption. Yeah. No, you know, no, it's a it's a I very clearly mm. right. So it's that's what I'm saying. It's a very clear point of difference between them. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a deliberate story choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also a point in in uh, in his eyes where he might be thinking of the aftermath in a weird way, and he's maybe mm. trying to frame this as an AJ saves the day, AJ yeah. hero yes. thing. Yep. Oh, she fell off the. Oh, I was unable to save her. Can you believe this mutant thing that I mm. stopped single handedly? Yep. And now, uh, poor old yeah. this lady who I only just met, Tess, I guess is her name. Oh, she fell off and and died, but I was able to. The monster her. probably grabbed yeah. her. In <laughs> yeah, fact, you grabbed know? It wasn't her. even falling. Yeah. It was the monster. And don't um, don't check the bullet wound against my gun. Mm. Mm. I mean, all the way through, even before he verbalizes it, you can tell he's a guy who tries to come up with his own narratives to give himself peace of mind. Oh, definitely. Um, And then he has that line, am I a bad person or am I a good person who's done a bad thing? And he has stuff like that. And then when he throws off the roof and he comes down, it's like, you know, trying to make up another story so that, you know, makes sense in his mind. He's he's, he's a douchebag. I'm, I'm glad that he got some very brutal comeuppance um, because all, he deserved it. All of his reactions to, since the accusation is made in that opening scene, mm-hmm. like all of his reactions show someone with, you know, basically fit into the whole the Me Too, the Me Too mm-hmm. yeah. arguments. You know, this this idea that, that men, some men, not all men, hashtag. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I mean, look, that it's these, these guys who are responsible for this stuff, that they delude themselves that it was mm. a game that it was you know it, it was not real resistance that it was uh, not sincere on her part that she wanted it really that she was into Just it really convincing. You know? mm-hmm. it, yeah it that it it doesn't really matter even if it did happen and that it's you know it shouldn't be enough to mess with her careers that she's out to get him that this is vengeance you know all of these kind of stories that this is unfair that they're being picked upon that they're being targeted that they're being bullied all of this, he, he's running the playbook, the whole mm. um, Me Too playbook, and I thought that that stuff was was really well brought to life because you know you do have that moment, uh, and I think this has been one of the real problems with the with with forcing accountability. But there there, are, there is this human tendency to forgive people who have made mistakes. There is this human tendency to say, I also might read misread people's intentions sometimes. I understand how that could happen. I understand how you could be misled as to someone else's state of mind. You know, I think there's a lot of people who put themselves in in the shoes of these abusers and say, you know, I can see how that would happen. I'm not saying I condone it. Oh, God forbid. But I see how that would happen. And you get this tendency to give people a second chance and to give people understanding and to give people, you know, compassion. And that is all very commendable and human and and everything else. The problem is you're not extending the same compassion to victims and mm. to survivors a lot of the time. Mm. And I think that's what this this film kind of lays out rather well. Um, and in a way that I haven't seen it done before, it doesn't feel cliched, it doesn't feel kind of lazily done because it is at that point all his point of view and you are seeing that he feels victimized, that he feels bullied, that he's suddenly got no money, that everyone seems to be turning on him because we're all seeing it from his point of view. Mm-hmm. And still, it turns out he is a bad person, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really p- 
powerful way to approach all this stuff and a non-cliched way to approach all this stuff um, that I thought was was really well done. Yeah, very much so. And I, I think one of the reasons why this film is getting a lot of uh, praise and, and perhaps overhype, and I think I can see where you're coming from with that, because mm. I, I know certainly when it opened at the weekend, I saw a fair number of people on Twitter going, some people, you know, I'm obviously Barbarian, and then they'd come back and they'd go, yeah, that was amazing, really loved it, didn't know where it was going. Then other people were like, really? It's not as good as it was cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Really? This is held as one of the best film horror films of the year? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, one of the reasons why it's kind of standing out is not just all the, the shock stuff and the subversions and the and the rogue pulls, although that's certainly a huge part of it, but it's just a really, really well-made film. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe this is the same guy who co-directed Miss March, which is a frankly shockingly bad teen sex comedy from 2009. So he's part of the sketch troupe or was part of the sketch troupe because they, one of their their one of their number died last year. So uh, I think they're no longer together. Uh, but the widest guys you know. And, you know, uh, you can see a certain element of comedy in there, but it's it's basically like, <laughs> it's basically like Jordan Peele. Like you, you mm. get a guy who's coming from a sketch show or a Terry Gilliam or something like that. You come from the sketch comedy background and then you take them onto the big screen and they're really, really good. They're, 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 his control, his composition is mm. excellent. It's shot beautifully. Mm. I mean, those blacks are blacks and yeah. you cannot see into them. And, and that there's so much fear contained within those shadowy parts of the screen. Mm. Except when he wants you to. Like, think yeah. of that bit where she sort of fades up out of the darkness coming towards Frank's room mm-hmm. when, just, when AJ's standing at the door and there, you just see the silhouette very, very yeah. visi- mm. faintly kind of coming at you. It's an amazing mm. shot. And he yeah. lingers on it and she and mm. she goes back and you can still like just see her leaving. It's, yes. Mm-hmm. And all the composition of even when um, Tess is figuring out like the mirror and the mm-hmm. light mm-hmm. and trying to get out the window and like there's those like zooming shots as she realizes the key's not in the lockbox yeah. and yeah. It, it felt like it had like a bit of flair as well as just being really well composed absolutely and all the the, the settings sort of using the decay of Detroit to yes. mirror the decay of Frank and his neighborhood but but there, yeah. there's also a sense of kind of creeping corruption isn't there the, the sense that almost as he has tunneled right around the neighborhood yeah. that you know everything has become mm. corrupted yeah. as well by his evil that was another red flag for me like <laughs> in terms of she's come back she's coming back from a job interview and it's in daylight now. So even I think when get she leaves for the job interview, get, get, you get see, the hell out. What are you? I don't know. I did not care if I purchased two hundred pound garments from Zara the day before, and they're at the house. I'm not going back there. I'm leaving <laughs> out. But yeah, in terms 200 of two hundred pound garments, that was such a I, random thing to pluck yeah, out there. I'm, I'm looking online as a cook. I want to get, get some new garments. So that's, that's just, it's, just on, it's just on the brain. But um, I, wow, I, I honestly, I need to talk to whoever's paying you, my mom, because. <laughs> It's clearly a very different person who plays me. <laughs> but I agree with everything you're saying in terms of the filmmaking. It's really, really good. Even the opening, uh, well, the, the shot before the title card comes in, when she goes into the house and it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the film is pulling you in. Yeah, like it goes, because she yeah. hasn't crossed through the threshold of the door yet. Exactly. And then it's like, oh, this is a moment. Like she's mm. stepping exactly. in. Exactly. I really love that moment. Um, obviously, because I'm me, I have to talk about the score. Uh, by Anna Drubik, which is so good. Very, <laughs> very, very, very effective. Um, she actually co-scored uh, a couple of other horror films in recent times, Fear Street Part 1 and Fear Street Part 3 with Marco Beltrami. Um, so, yeah, very, it's very talented. It's happening a lot more, isn't it, these days? So is, is, mm. is this a case of 
we've got to wrap up in a second I don't know why I've, I've gone down this path uh, but is this a case of like huge composers like a Beltrami or a mm. Hans Zimmer or a, or a Lauren Balfe or a um, or Michael Cicchino mm-hmm. who co-wrote of course with Nami Thor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thor Love and Thunder yeah. so is this a case of they're just too busy and they because some of them some of these composers do have kind of stables, teams stables of, of yeah. other composers who are, who are kind of being trained up under them mm-hmm. so is it is it a case of then they farm this out and go okay you come on and do this with me yeah. and yeah. if it goes well you'll get, a, you'll get the credit I think part of it is busyness what you say and I think part of it is also mentorship um, with Nami Melimad who I've spoken to um, and I'm thinking I would not be surprised to an extent with Anna Drubik um, these are women composers. There's not that many still in the industry today. And I feel like the composing community is starting to take notice of that to a degree and is trying to lift people up where they can. Yeah. Um, and I think with, with Nami and Anna, that's just uh, two examples. Uh, Hans has been doing that with a lot of male composers for, for years. years. Yeah. Uh, Lorne Balfi is one such composer who's come up under the Hans sort of pathway program. <laughs> <laughs> the Hans Pathway, let's go with that, the Hans Pathway. Um, Raman Jawadi is also another one who came up uh, with Hans as well. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think more, that, yeah, more that the better. Yeah, I think the difference is now that women are also getting that pathway, which was not, like, unofficially and not, you know, uh, as as a matter of conscious, I think, discrimination. Conscious. Thank you. <laughs> um, open to men before. I think also the, the fact that, you know, it's not just mentorship, it is also a conscious effort to actually credit people. Mm-hmm. I think there have been dark tales in composerdom mm-hmm. about people doing a lot of work and essentially getting no or little credit before. And I think now there's a there's a conscious effort, conscious effort <laughs> by the um by the big name composers to actually give credit where it's due as co-composers and not just as sort of orchestration by. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, which may have happened in the past, if you believe the scuttlebutt. If you believe the scuttlebutt indeed. Uh listen, <laughs> on that note, or should I say notes? That is it for our Barbarian spoiler special. Hope you guys enjoyed it. All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. <laughs> uh, where, where do you rank on the uh, Chris Hewitt lethal cunning threshold? I'm on one. Uh, I'm a 10, obviously. Um, okay. <laughs> no, I take that back. The scale does not exist. My lethal cunning is so off the charts. So I like it, but you're, I'm on, you're so humble. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I am the most humble person I know, by the way. Uh, it's also <laughs> goodbye from Sophie Butcher. Goodbye. Just one last thing before I go. I want to shout out Georgina Campbell. Yes. who is of course, mm-hmm. excellent yes. in this film. Also, I implore you to watch um, a British comedy called All My Friends Hate Me, yes. which she is in, She's and really she is very, that. very good. Mm-hmm. I believe it's on the BFI player now to and rent. Go and check out my interview with her. Uh, it's on last week's regular podcast. We don't talk about anything, really, but I still had a good time for a good 20 <laughs> minutes. So, yeah, definitely keeping an eye on her. And I think this is going to do big things for her career. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. She's very good. One of the best final girls Mm. I've seen for a long time. Except she's the first girl as well, really. Goodbye to Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. (laughs) Toodaloo indeed. And uh, and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to venture into that door behind me here in the Jazz FM studio. Heavens knows what I'm going to (laughs) find. Not me coming after you, that's for sure. (laughs) I hope it's just like a a speakeasy, like a a little snug. That'd be amazing. Oh my God, it's Kermode Mayo. Ah! Run, everyone! (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.